my 10-year high school reunion coincided with the date of my release from prison, which was convenient since I was arrested during my 5-year reunion and my tuxedo was waiting for me when I went to collect my personal belongings. The hour I had to prepare didn't give me much transition time from prison to the real world, and when I received my name tag at the front entrance, I instinctively held it in front of my chest and turned to the side, waiting for my mugshot to be taken. I bypassed the scattered pockets of vaguely familiar former classmates and headed directly for the buffet table, where I ravenously ingested an entire cheese plate with my fingers, toothpicks and all. In prison, you're given five minutes to eat an entire meal before you're shoved out of the mess hall, so I had adapted to consuming food with remarkable speed and no discernible table manners. A pretty blonde I once dated recognized me and started walking in my direction, but she averted her gaze and made a detour towards the restrooms when she noticed the still intact claws of a lobster hanging from my mouth. As I was shotgunning the complimentary soft drinks, I overheard some old friends discussing the recent developments in their lives. One had been made a senior vice president for his advertising firm. Another had recently celebrated the birth of his second child. They motioned toward me and said, So, what have you been doing for the last five years? Well, I said, I restored an aging fire engine to mint condition, I trained wild horses for the Federal Bureau of Land Management, I ground over 500 prescription lenses for welfare patients, I enrolled in vocational programs in automotive repair, electronics, woodworking, building and metal trades, masonry, and meat cutting. I read every book in the prison law library three times, I batted 300 for my cell block softball team, I served apprenticeships in both tattoo design and body piercing, and I improved my bench press by 200 pounds. I then drained the last of the punch bowl into my open mouth and headed for the dance floor. I had been without female companionship for five years and was eager to dance with one of my old flames, but they all purposely avoided me. I thought my new muscular physique would attract at least one of them, but they obviously hadn't forgotten the events of the last reunion when I had to be subdued with taser guns and pepper spray. I doubt anyone even remembered my upset victory at Limbo. Maybe it was just my excitement over getting out of prison, but I had eagerly anticipated this event for months, and when stuck face to face with all my former friends and acquaintances, it occurred to me how much I hated high school and how I wanted nothing to do with these people. I had romanticized my formative years so much that I left out the parts where my head was dunked in the toilets, where lewd pictures of me were spray-painted on my locker, where my prom date left me to have a threesome with our basketball team starting forwards. With no family to go home to, and no friends to take me in, I did the only logical thing I could think of. I held the former prom queen hostage with a buffet table carving knife until the SWAT team apprehended me. Curiously enough, the DJ was playing Love Will Keep Us Together by Captain and Tennille, the same song that was playing the last time I was arrested. And so, I booked myself a return ticket to jail for another five-year stay. I was hoping that they would incarcerate me in one of the upstate prisons, because I was tired of reading all the same books in the library, 
but I guess I shouldn't be so choosy. At least this time, I could bypass that awkward transition period of choosing which gang I'd like to join. As they say, once a crip, always a crip. a foot soldier in the war on drugs. I worked locally with federal DEA agents to identify hotspots of drug activity and monitor suspected dealers. My first day on the job, a police sergeant gave my task force a pep talk. Gentlemen, he said, you've got your work cut out for you. Your opponent will come at you from all sides, Colombian cocaine on merchant vessels through the Caribbean. Russian ecstasy via commercial airlines and express package delivery, high-grade BC bud over the Canadian border, black tar heroin over the Mexican border, powdered heroin on container ships from Southeast Asia, LSD by mail order from the West Coast, crystal meth home-cooked in Midwestern super labs, and black market prescription narcotics from every pharmacy in the United States. Your hands will be tied by budget constraints and bureaucratic gridlock, while your opponent will only increase in wealth and power, operating with the efficiency of a well-oiled machine. You will have to deal not only with dealers and traffickers, but with public opinion. One in every three Americans has used marijuana, including the former and current president of the United States. Chances are you yourself have used marijuana. Perhaps the enemy is you. This is a war without borders, a war without sides. You will be fighting your own citizens as well as foreign distributors. You will be fighting a product that needs no marketing, no TV ads, no full-page spread in the Sunday paper, no celebrity endorsement. As long as there is a demand, there will always be a supply. And there will always be a demand. You will be racing Secretariat and the Belmont Stakes, except Secretariat will get a one-and-a-half-minute head start. You will be playing Michael Jordan in a game of one-on-one, -on -one, except you won't be allowed to dribble. You will be going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Muhammad Ali, except no matter how many times you knock him down, he'll always win by a unanimous judge's decision. Gentlemen, this is a Vietnam without the advantage of napalm. This is Custer's last stand without rifles. There's no Geneva Convention, no Red Cross, no ceasefires, no coalition of the willing. You're on your own, boys. So, good luck out there, and keep reaching for that rainbow. My first months on the job, I rarely helped make an arrest or set up a sting operation. Mostly, I conducted surveillance of prominent cocaine kingpins, culling vital information from secretly recorded conversations and clandestine meetings. All of my subjects were respected pillars of their community, 
family men, generous benefactors to their church and charitable organizations. Their young children couldn't have known that the outdoor pool was bought with cocaine money, that the 42-inch enhanced definition plasma TV came from hydroponic marijuana, that their beloved stuffed teddy bears were once used to smuggle pure Turkish heroin. And the biggest insult of all, the one that hurt the most, was that every night when these men retired to sleep with their beautiful wives in their picturesque mansions with a breathtaking view of the unblemished ocean, I went home to a small one-room apartment beneath the highway overpass, the best my 30000 a year salary could afford, and would be faced with the dilemma of focusing on the omnipresent rumbling of passing semi-trucks or the constant shouting of the family of seven in the room next door. And sometimes we'd take down a dealer and there'd be a huge party in the office with balloons and paper streamers and a large chocolate cake, and we'd all get drunk on cheap champagne and vodka, and maybe I'd take one of the academy trainees back to my place to spend the night. But the next morning, I'd wake up with a terrible hangover. The girl would be gone, and a new dealer would have already replaced the old one. It was like fighting the Hydra, the many-headed serpent who grew two new heads for every one you cut off. Hercules defeated the Hydra by burning the neck after cutting the head, but at that point, the analogy falls through. No one like Hercules was working for the DEA. There was a small band of Japanese soldiers stationed on a tiny Philippine island that continued fighting well after the end of World War II. All were eventually killed by local forces, except one, a man by the name of Lieutenant Onoda, who refused to lay down his arms until he received formal orders to surrender. He finally did so on March 9, 1974, nearly 29 years after the end of the war. And sometimes, I wonder if that's what we're doing, waiting for an official declaration that confirms what we already know that the war can't be won, it can't be lost, it just goes on and on, like a fractal, or a photon of light. Will I live to see my comrades lay down their arms? Probably not. I suppose we all have to earn that pension somehow. I read somewhere that fast food restaurants are robbed by their employees more than any other business. Not being one to buck a trend, I decided to rob the Biggie Burger, my employer of two years. My getaway driver, Jack the Cripple, was out of town, so I figured I'd just rob them at the drive through window. I chose Saturday as the day of the robbery since I had the day off, and so did Mary Jane Francis. I had a thing for Mary Jane, and I didn't think pointing a semi-automatic rifle at her head would lead to a blossoming romance. Normally, Jack the Cripple plans the getaway route, but after conducting several time trials with my 87 Honda Civic, 
I settled on the most efficient means of escape, which involved driving over several median strips in an elementary school playground. I purchased a pair of black pantyhose for a disguise at a local department store where a nice young girl helped me choose the proper size. In addition, I purchased several laced bustiers for Mary Jane Francis. When it came time to rob the Biggie Burger, I was very hungry, so I ordered a big and juicy with cheese, a large fries, and a razzle-dazzle berry parfait. In addition, I asked for all the money in the cash register and indicated that I had a gun. Unfortunately, the drive through intercom wasn't working properly and the last part of my order was garbled with static. When I got to the drive through window, I was handed my food, some napkins, and a straw, but not the money. I told the young girl at the window that I specifically asked for all the money in the cash register and she said she'd have to speak with her manager. I waited several minutes, but no one came to the window, and the cars behind me became impatient and started honking at me. Supremely frustrated, they abandoned the robbery and settled on stealing the UNICEF donation jar perched on the ledge of the window. I peeled out of the driveway and raced over the median strip, dodging an oncoming parking enforcement truck. In case anyone was following me, I performed several evasive maneuvers around a game of hopscotch in the playground and was soon home free. That night, I got a call from my boss, informing me that I owed $6.50 for my meal and was to return the stolen UNICEF jar immediately. Apparently, the pantyhose the girl at the store picked out were almost completely transparent. So thanks to her, I'm out $6.50 for my lunch, $7 in profits, and $45 for two lace bustiers. If you ask me, salespeople are the real criminals. As a former public relations representative for the Baltimore Police Department, I spent the majority of my time overseeing the production of public service announcements for radio and television, urging children to say no to drugs and stay in school. I designed trading cards of police officers for the D.A.R.E. program, brainstormed ideas for a new crime-fighting mascot, and attended various casting calls, selecting the professional actors who could most convincingly portray a heroin addict or a gangbanger. Until recently, I had Baltimore's public outreach market pretty much cornered, 
my 30-second TV ads instantly recognizable by the cinema verite immediacy co-opted from John Cassavetes and the stylistic allusions to Truffaut and Godard. My latest mascot, a crime-fighting mouse modeled after the illustrations of Art Spiegelman, graced t-shirts and water bottles distributed throughout the Baltimore public school system. I was the artistic director of the war on crime. My undisputed monopoly became threatened, however, by the release of an independent DVD called Stop Snitching, made by a local drug dealer named Skinny Shug. In the low-budget homemade documentary, Shug and other residents of poor Baltimore neighborhoods like Park Heights and East Lombard and Crescent espoused the merits of drug dealing and threatened those who rat on them with violence. Dope dealers spew freestyle raps over a soundtrack of buzzing car stereos, and Denver Nuggets forward Carmelo Anthony makes a celebrity appearance, sharing screen time with small-time pushers advocating the killing of drug informants. The underground DVD became an instant success, selling thousands of copies in Baltimore and other East Coast cities. Stop Snitchin' t-shirts became a staple of local clothing stores, and the phrase muscled itself into the city's lexicon, uttered everywhere from fitness centers to neighborhood bars to city hall. Police officers involved with the D.A.R.E. program reported that far more schoolchildren were wearing Stop Snitchin' t-shirts than clothing adorned with Artie the Crime-Fighting Mouse, and as a result, my promotional efforts were criticized for being antiquated and out of touch with the city's youth. I protested, saying that my artistic vision shouldn't be compromised in order to pander to a specific demographic, but the police department ignored my objections and hired a consultant to supervise my projects. The consultant's background was in hip-hop music videos, and we immediately clashed over the soundtrack for a radio ad discouraging drunk driving. I wanted to use a Terry Riley piece performed by the Kronos Quartet to heighten the drama, but the consultant lobbied for a Ja Rule song, arguing that it would appeal to young people. The police department sided with the consultant, and my 22nd masterpiece was marred by derivative East Coast beats and stale, unimaginative rhymes. While Skinny Shug premiered Stop Snitching to thunderous applause at a local film festival, my own cinematic attempts were consistently undermined by the police department's hired goon. Citing the boost in Stop Snitching's popularity from an appearance by NBA star Carmelo Anthony, the consultant hired Baltimore Ravens running back Jamal Lewis to appear in a promotional video called Keep Talking, encouraging residents to continue supplying police with information on drug dealers. I had always passionately insisted on and using little-known actors so that viewers would believe my film's anti-drug slogans were coming from real-life ex-cons and addicts, bona fide denizens of the streets. The addition of a celebrity like Jamal Lewis would surely damage my work's authenticity, and furthermore, his line readings were weak and distracting. I could find better actors bussing the tables at Denny's. Luckily, the police department rejected the casting of Lewis on the grounds that he had been convicted of using a cell phone to facilitate a drug deal, but the damage was already done. I feel my career slipping from my hands, derailed by my superior's obsession with a youth demographic. I had once aspired to make the Citizen Kane of crime prevention ads, but now it looked like I'd have to settle for the magnificent Ambersons, would-be masterpiece plucked from my hands by artless, ignorant executives and sabotaged B-17.
beyond recognition. I tendered my resignation with the police department and found work directing CPR instructional videos for the American Red Cross, but my efforts were still plagued with a lack of creative control, my grandiose vision thwarted by boardroom naysayers without any film experience. I wanted to set the film against the backdrop of a nightmarish underground city that experiences a catastrophic flood, a nod to Fritz Lang's Metropolis, with Teutonic lifeguards heroically rescuing women and children from the rising waters with perfect executions of active and passive victim rescues and shallow water spinal injury management. Unfortunately, the Red Cross scoffed at my ambitious set designs and quasi-Marxist overtones and ordered me to shoot the film on video at a local YMCA. I fought for a director's cut release of the final product that included a somber funeral for a drowning victim who couldn't be saved by cardiopulmonary resuscitation, but the Red Cross refused and destroyed the extra footage. I requested that my name be taken off the end credits and quit the next day. Walking alone through the streets of Baltimore, my career in shambles, I was accosted by a local merchant selling copies of Stop Snitching for $10 a video. Cognizant of the film's overwhelming success, I bought one of the DVDs and headed home to watch it, hoping to derive some inspiration from the lauded independent blockbuster. However, instead of stoking the fires of my imagination, Stop Snitching merely angered me with its grainy footage, unfocused narrative, and amateurish editing and I found its critical and financial success absolutely inexplicable. It was then that I finally realized that the tastes of the film-going masses had become utterly depraved, and my attempts to commit my unique artistic vision to celluloid would ultimately go unwatched, my films forever destined for the cutting room floor. I renounced my profession and found a job as a sales manager. Changes jeans and urban wear store in East Point Mall. Our hottest items are the Stop Snitchin' t-shirts emblazoned with shotgun targets, sold for $28 a piece. Every time a 15-year-old kid buys one of the shirts, I silently tell myself that for the same amount of money, he could buy a newly restored Hitchcock thriller or a Robert Altman epic. But then again, who am I to question the whims of capitalism? the cultural rape of America is a crime, then crime most certainly does pay. I've got the stock portfolio to prove it. As a well-known motivational speaker for small businesses and corporations, I've garnered a certain amount of respect and influence within the business community. When I talk, people listen. 
So when I was approached by city aldermen to head a task force on reducing the sale of drugs in his district, I jumped at the opportunity. After conducting some initial research, I combined my data with observations from years of experience in marketing and sales and presented my findings to the city council. In my mind, the most important contributing factor to drug dealing by young people is a lack of salesmanship. Anyone can sell drugs, they practically sell themselves, but what's the fun in that? Where's the delicate ballet of enticing passing shoppers? Where's the thrill of closing the deal after an arduous rhetorical tango? I guarantee you, once a troubled youth has closed his first deal on a baby blue Porsche 356 or state-of-the-art Hoover vacuum cleaner, he'll never want to deal cocaine again. The fact is, these malcontents selling Turkish hash on street corners in ecstasy at raves have the makings for expert salesmen, but no one's taken the trouble to show them the ropes. Drug dealers who've served prison terms are already intimately familiar with such economic concepts as market price, inventory, and seasonal adjustment, excelling within the prison economy of cigarettes, drugs, and sexual partners. Furthermore, most drug dealers have a working knowledge of the metric system, which is especially useful in today's global marketplace. Some would call these men born criminals, but I believe they are salesmen by inclination, requiring but a simple shove in the right direction towards the promised land of tweed jackets and clearance racks. But rather than rehabilitating these men in prison, I propose that we enroll them in my nationally accredited business education program, instructing them on sales jargon, advertising iconography, the art of the handshake, and of course, proper posture. For those who live outside of Greater Dallas-Fort Worth, my patented techniques are easily disseminated with my 90-minute instructional video, available on either VHS or DVD. My young students will learn how to woo a regular customer base, how to manipulate tax write-offs and reduce overhead, and, most importantly, how to dress for success, abandoning their raggedy jeans and backwards baseball caps for my trademark tweed jacket, plaid necktie. Sure, a drug dealer pays no taxes, no advertising costs, no licensing fees, no social security deductions, and no workman's comp, doesn't rely on Labor Day sales, cash incentives, celebrity endorsements, cartoon spokesmen, and 50% off coupons, doesn't need to languish in the cubicle, sit through pointless two-hour strategy meetings, attend diversity training seminars, fill out voice of the employee surveys, and endure water cooler conversations about desperate housewives and the OC. But I'm sure once they've gone through my program, they'll gladly give up their autonomy and 100% profit margin for the glamorous world of retail salesmanship. Some people say a necktie is a noose, but to me, the lightheadedness from a tightly secured double Windsor is merely a sign of achieving financial nirvana, the workaday equivalent of autoerotic asphyxiation. So to all you dealers out there, I say take that tourniquet off your arm and tie a smart foreign hand knot and paradise is yours. The world is your oyster.
One in every 140 Americans is currently in prison or jail. That's the highest incarceration rate in the world. It's about the same as the percentage of people allergic to peanuts, British citizens with facial disfigurements, Africans who use the internet, Southern Californians who are homeless, and people afflicted with epilepsy. Of these prisoners, 20% are incarcerated for drug offenses in state prisons, and over 50% for drug offenses in federal prisons. African Americans account for roughly 15% of all illicit drug use, and yet 58% of prisoners in state prison for drug felonies are black. Our politicians' promises to make our communities safer have mostly succeeded in making our communities whiter. There are now more black men in prison than in college. What do we hope to achieve by filling our already overcrowded prisons with even more prisoners? It's as if we're trying to collect all the evil in the world and stuff it back in Pandora's box, but no matter how hard we try, the box won't shut. Instead of just putting the worst of the worst inside and locking it tightly, we try to jam in too much and everything spills out. For every drug user that comes in, out comes a rapist. For every nonviolent criminal, out comes a murderer. Jails and prisons serve a purpose. They provide an incentive for people to obey the law, and they remove dangerous criminals from society who present a clear threat to our safety and well-being. But at what point do prisons become more harmful than the occupants they contain? Is a poor neighborhood hurt more by robbers and thieves, or by the social upheaval of families torn apart by imprisonment? Will the ideals of our community leaders be shaped by the messages of Martin Luther King and Thurgood Marshall, or by the manufacture of license plates? Our country is currently locked in a bitter struggle to bring freedom to the people of Iraq and other oppressed regimes. In our nation's prisons, over two million Americans wonder, when will we bring the war back home?